Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I had a strange encounter in the supermarket recently. The place was really crowded and it was challenging to navigate the trolley around the aisles and people seemed to be very much in a hurry, as was I. I was keen to get my few bits and pieces and be away because shopping for groceries isn't my favorite thing. And then I saw a very large man heading towards me and at first glance, he looked rather intimidating. We did that embarrassing dance of the trolley thing. You know, you steer that way, they steer the same way. You head to the other side of the aisle and they follow suit. I looked at this situation and made the obvious comment, care to dance? And then I apologized for being in his way. His face broke into a broad smile. No problem, he said. And then as we passed each other, he slowed down and his smile got even bigger. So, he said, how are you doing today? He'd come to a stop. My mind raced. Did he know me? Was this someone from our church? But there was no recognition. This was a complete stranger taking a moment to notice me, to greet me, to show some interest. In short, he saw me. I'm fine, thank you, I replied. And how are you? Impossibly, his smile got even bigger. I'm great, he said. You have yourself a very nice day. It was a moment when the sun came out from behind the clouds, a simple act of pause between complete strangers that caused an almost physical rush of joy in me. In our rushing, busy, and often anonymous world, this was a moment to celebrate because that man didn't know me. He saw me. Last week, I was reflecting on some teaching about the ironic blessing that we find in the book of Numbers. You know that blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. I've been pondering what seems to be a rather clunky sentence. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you. I mean, what does that mean? Listening to a Bible teacher, he explained that a better translation might be, the Lord look right at you, at his shining face. What a beautiful thought. And that, of course, is exactly how Jesus changed many people's lives in his ministry. As Jesus walked this earth, he saw individuals in the midst of crowds. As I read the Bible's account of the life and ministry of Jesus, I'm amazed at how repeatedly Jesus saw individuals, even when the majority, the crowds, tried to keep him from interacting with individuals. When Bartimaeus, a man who was blind, called out as Jesus and a crowd of people were walking by, Jesus not only heard him, but stopped and talked to him and healed him. Until Jesus called for Bartimaeus to be brought over to him, the crowd of people seemed to see Bartimaeus as a a bother as a nuisance, and many were trying to silence Bartimaeus's shouting of the name of Jesus. The crowd wanted to push him away, but Jesus saw the person, his heart, his faith. Jesus saw his need. We read about this in Mark chapter 10. Jesus was constantly pressed on every side by people who wanted something for him, and that must have been exhausting. But even in the midst of those crowds, 
He saw individuals who were hurting and who needed not just healing in their bodies, but in their souls. A weeping widow from Nain passes by, and we read that Jesus saw her and his heart went out to her. And then he saw people when they were at their worst. In the midst of hot denials with curses, Peter suddenly felt eyes upon him. Luke tells us the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. No passing glance this, but a look of total knowing and yet total love and commitment. Jesus goes beyond the first glance. Let's be like him. It's an old saying, apparently dating from the 15th century, and it's one that I've never liked. It's children should be seen and not heard. It's a rather nasty notion. Let's enjoy the pleasant sight of children to warm our hearts, but be impervious to the untimely demands that their interruptions might create. The truth is, whether we're children or adults, we all want to be seen. Recently, one of my grandsons performed a spectacular kick. It was a perfect volley of a football. The moment after he did it, he immediately turned around to see if he had been seen. Look, Grandad, did you see that? What he really meant was, did you see me doing that? Growing up, I experienced the opposite. I felt heard by my parents. They cared for me, provided and protected but I have to confess that I didn't always feel very seen or noticed in my home. And it's not that my parents were bad or consciously neglectful, but like swimmers hampered by leaden boots, frantically treading water just to stay afloat, they were preoccupied with survival and trying to hold a home together. They married shortly after the end of the Second World War. My father had been stranded for five long years behind barbed wire, his youth stolen because he was a prisoner of war until, at last, he'd escaped. His innocence was hijacked by half a decade of incarceration and near starvation. Who knows what inner gremlins he wrestled. And then my mother carried her own scars. Abandoned by her father in infancy, one day he just walked out of the house and never returned, she too was a wounded soul, plagued by depression before depression really had a name. Her stepfather embraced the children should be seen and not heard philosophy. I was terrified of him. Expected to get out and get a job to contribute to the family income as soon as possible, education was denied to my mum. She left school at 14 and was placed in service as a housemaid in a palatial home. Forget the somewhat romantic portrayal of the downstairs community in Downton Abbey, Every day she watched a privileged few enjoy a life of luxury that was as foreign and unreachable to her as a distant planet. Her confidence was dented, irreparable. She never learned to drive, failing test after test, until at last she gave up. And then money was short in our home. Dad worked long hours as a maintenance engineer just to keep the family afloat. And my mother did a marvellous job caring for my grandfather, who lived with us. A bowel cancer survivor, his colostomy meant that putrid dressings had to be changed throughout every day, a task that fell to my mum. My parents did unbelievably well just staying together under such pressures. Now, I share all of this not to create some kind of, when I was a lad, 
we had to walk 20 miles barefoot in the snow to get to school kind of picture, but because I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the very real challenges that my parents endured. And surely, because of all of that, I just felt rather unnoticed. I know this not as a result of much psychotherapy, but because I remember one very exciting day in our family's life, one that embarrassingly shows how starved I was for attention. I think it happened when I was about 12 years old. Our house was burgled while I was alone there. Nothing was taken, but drawers were left flung open and stuff scattered everywhere as the robber searched in vain for something valuable to plunder. The police were called, and I gave a statement. As it turned out, the thief did get away with something valuable that day, because the thief was me. I staged a break-in at my house just to get noticed, and it worked. I think the kindly policeman knew it was me. Unmotivated, my scholastic achievements were lacklustre at best. University was never a subject broached, and I just assumed that I would follow my father, uncles, and brother into the company that they all worked for. I would service lifts and escalators. Thankfully, this never came about. The result would have been vast numbers of people stranded on the ground floor or stuck between the third and fourth. As I've often mentioned, I have zero skill in anything practical or mechanical. A major triumph for me is the correct wiring of a 13-amp plug. Any attempts that I've ever made in the DIY department have prompted my family to gather for a time of intercessory screaming. Unimpressed with my careless attitude, my school teachers were largely indifferent. That is, until I joined Mr. Ruff's class. An avid cricket fan and lover of Sussex Real Ale, Mr. Ruff taught English and quickly decided it was a subject that I could possibly do well in. This was very good news because I was mediocre at everything else. I disliked chemistry, mainly because the teacher in charge had almost blown his head off in an experiment that went wrong, which didn't inspire too much confidence. History was dull. I hated my art teacher and the feeling was mutual and I was so bad at maths that I didn't even bother to show up for my final exam. I still cannot perform basic multiplication or division sums to this day. But English? Now that was another story, literally. Mr. Ruff told me that I was pretty good at stringing sentences together. More than that, he looked into the crowded classroom filled with adolescents who were quite aghast at the idea that Shakespeare was interesting, and he saw me. Like a moth to light, I responded to his interest and gained a double A at A-level. Being seen. That was the key that unlocked my potential, and all these years later, I've tried in vain to track Mr. Ruff down so that I could treat him to a pint of best bitter and maybe a steak to go with it. He saw me, and it changed my life. And then there was another teacher, Mrs. Richardson, who taught religious education. I had absolutely no interest in the subject, but I felt drawn to her because she showed caring interest in me. I didn't know then that her husband, Brian, would become my pastor and do a wonderful job at it too. These people saw me. I love them. The Jewish theologian Martin Buber speaks of the distinction in our minds between treating people as subjects or objects. By objects, 
He means the propensity in our world for us to see others for what use they might have for us or reducing them to being commodities to be managed rather than people to be noticed and cared for. To the doctor, dear Mr. Smith, who has just recently been widowed, becomes the broken arm in cubicle number seven. To the salesperson in the shoe shop, the customer is an unwelcome interruption to her chatter about Saturday night plans. And to the pastor, the gathering of the uniquely storied individuals can become the congregation, or worse still, just the crowd. Today, most of us will see people, and I'm not suggesting that we stop and stare at everyone, studying them intently. People who do that are called stalkers. But with God's help, let's take time today to look and notice, and if appropriate, stop and really see people. Who knows? Our genuine interest, our seeing, it might just change a life because being seen changed mine. As we've been thinking about being seen, let's know that we all long to be seen, to be known. The Garden of Eden is a picture of naked innocence, of knowing God and each other completely. Now, I am certainly not proposing nude fellowship, naturist small groups. That would surely be quite horrific. But the longing for self-disclosure and intimacy lingers. From the very earliest days of childhood, when we master the use of the potty, wobble successfully on the two wheels of our bike, or learn to spell our names, we're desperate for someone to see us. We crave being noticed. But our hunger for intimacy remains. That's why Mark Zuckerberg is a billionaire. Facebook and other forms of social media offer the opportunity for connection, however fleeting or trivial. Being noticed and seen, it's a fundamental human need. So again, do we truly take time to notice others and in doing so show them how much they are valued? This week, may we as followers of Jesus Christ intentionally take time to get to know people, to build relationships, to actively demonstrate God's amazing love. Let's see people. And I'll see you next week. Lucas on Life.